You know, one of the ways that Hollywood gets its revenge on Christianity is by portraying pastors in less than commendable terms. And I'm sure you've seen the caricatures. Hollywood loves to portray pastors in all sorts of unflattering ways, overbearing, self-righteous, naive, stupid, out of touch, insensitive, hypocritical, money-grubbing idiots whose profession and advice is arbitrary and meaningless, right? Just watch any Clint Eastwood movie that he directs, and there's always a pastor there, and he always fits this sort of description. And I have no question that in the history of the world, there have been pastors, buffoons, who called themselves pastors, who exactly met the stereotypes. I have no question of that whatsoever. And yet what the Hollywood executives don't realize, in fact, what most people don't actually realize is that pastoral ministry in the local church is one of the most weighty and grave callings that exists on the face of the planet. It is. Pastoral ministry is one of the most weighty callings that exist on the face of the planet. And I know that sounds a bit overdramatic, and I was hesitant to say that for fear that it would make it sound like that pastors are more important than other Christians, which they're totally not. But as I began to think about what the New Testament actually says, it became clear that, that few callings in life have more weight and gravity than pastoral ministry. And the reason for that is because elders are called to preach the word and to feed the flock, and to shepherd the sheep, and to lead the church behind enemy lines against the powers of darkness. And for those things, they will be held to a stricter judgment. That's an elder. That's what an elder is called to be and do. And so what that tells us is that the Christ-exalting success of a church, or the Christ-defaming failure of a church, is profoundly dependent upon the men that you have in leadership. And speaking of leadership, that's exactly what's on Paul's mind in the letter to Titus. Not even just leadership, but even the church as a whole, the health of the church as a whole. And the reason for that is because Paul's letter to Titus, what it is, is the blueprints for a healthy church. In other words, whether planting a new church resurrecting a dead church or nursing a sickly church back to health, Titus is the raw materials with which you do that. And although Paul's got lots of things he says you've got to have to have a healthy church, the first thing on the list he says that you need are leaders. And Paul calls them elders. And, and to, be elder, to be an elder, you need to be qualified. And elders have 15 qualifications. And Paul divides them up into three categories that a man must have to be an elder. And this morning, Paul gets to the first of the three categories. And believe it or not, the category is sexual purity and parenting. That's the first of the three categories. Sexual purity and parenting, which means lust in the heart and leadership in the home. Which means what Paul does this morning is he pokes around in the most private thoughts and desires and corners of a man's life. He invades the most unguarded moments of a man's life when he is all alone by himself and no one can see him except God. And Paul says, there, right there. Who a man is in those moments is who a man really is. And who a man really is in those moments is what determines if he is qualified to lead the local church. That's where Paul is going. Lust and leadership, purity and parenting, holiness in the heart and headship in the home. And having said that, I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that this is only for men this morning thinking about biblical eldership. It's not. In fact, this is hauntingly relevant for every single person sitting in the room, every single person watching at home, because the question, what do elder qualifications matter to me if I'm never going to be an elder, is kind of like asking, why does it matter if the surgeon who's going to operate on me is drunk or not? See the connection? The ones in whom you place the care for your soul had better be spiritually qualified to do so. That's why this matters. But the second reason why these qualifications matter is because 
Every single qualification to which elders are called to be in the local church are also the exact same qualifications to which every other believer is called somewhere else in the New Testament also. In other words, elders are called to kill sexual lust and to lead their homes, not so that you don't have to, but so that you will know how to. To put it another way, they do what they do so that you will do what they do also, because as go the shepherds, so go the sheep. So here we go. The inspired resume of biblical elders, Titus 1, we'll look at verses 5 through 9. Again, we interrupt this regularly scheduled 1 John series to take a time to focus on biblical elders and eldership, and here's where we're going this morning, over this, over this morning and over the next week or so, we're going to look at three categories. Three categories in which biblical elders must be blameless if a church ever hopes to change the world for the glory of Christ. I know that sounds a bit over the top, but it's not. Three categories in which biblical elders must be blameless if a church ever hopes to change the world for the glory of Christ. And the first category in which elders are to be blameless, number one, an elder must be lethal over lust and faithful over his family. An elder must be lethal over lust and faithful over his family. Let's begin where Paul begins, verse 5. Notice what he says, for this reason, Titus, speaking to Titus, for this reason, Titus, I left you behind in Crete. Why? So that you would set in order the things which are lacking, and that you would appoint elders in every city or every church in every city, just as I commanded you. Now, you remember from last week that Paul spent two years in the Italy State Penitentiary for the gospel. Because as soon as he gets out on parole, he grabs Titus, and immediately the first thing they do is they book a flight to the island of Crete, where they begin proclaiming the gospel and planting churches. But for whatever reason, Paul doesn't explain why this is that he has to leave. He has to leave Titus alone by himself to plant churches that advance the Great Commission, that reach God's elect, and yet to help Titus do that, Paul writes a letter and he sends it in the mail, and it just happens to be the exact same letter that we are looking at even at this moment 2,000 years later called Paul's letter to Titus. And you see what this letter is? It's blueprints for a healthy church. And you notice that the first thing that Paul says you need to have a church like that, what does he say? He says, for this reason, I I left you behind on Crete, Titus, so that you would appoint elders. You would appoint elders in every church, in every city, just as I commanded you. And there it is. There's the operative word. Appoint elders, he says. Which means we're talking about leadership. We're talking about shepherds appointed by God who labor in the trenches and who help their people live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission. That is an elder. And yet there are three preliminary issues that we have to really get to the bottom of here. Three issues that we have to figure out to get to the bottom of to understand what Paul is talking about. First, there is the title of elders. Second, there's the gender of elders. And third, there's the standard for elders. The title, the gender, and the standard. First, the title of elders, and we saw this last week. I mean, why are elders called elders? What's the significance of this term? And what we saw last week is that this is not some arbitrary title. This isn't just some hand-me-down from Jewish culture. No, that term literally means older ones. Older ones, that's the meaning of the term. And the point is not a man's age necessarily, but his maturity In other words, like we saw last week, the term elder assumes a level of Christ-exalting maturity and purity and holiness that everybody can see and has seen for years, regardless of their age. Because you understand it doesn't matter how much confidence or charisma or competence a man may have if he does not have verifiable Christian maturity that is obvious to everyone who knows him, that dude isn't qualified to lead the church. Because you understand that it is not so much great talent that God uses so much as it is great likeness to Jesus Christ. 
That's number one, the title of elders. But second, the gender of elders. The gender of elders, which Paul makes it perfectly clear, elders are to be men. They're to be men. And we know that because in the very next verse, Paul says that elders are to be the husband of one wife. In fact, every noun and pronoun and adjective in the whole text all are in the masculine gender, not to mention that every single text in the entirety of the New Testament describes elders as pastors as being men alone and not women. And just even saying that out loud, we kind of, sort of, flinch just a little bit. Just even saying that out loud, we sort of wince just a little bit. It feels risky. It feels controversial to say out loud, doesn't it? To say that according to the Bible, men alone and not women are eligible to be elders feels like something of which we should be ashamed. And the reason for that is probably due not only to the undue pressure we feel from the fourth wave of the feminist agenda, which weaponizes their language, but also because women have legitimately suffered under cruel and insensitive and and irresponsible men. Big big fat jerks who did not know how to love and care for women. That is true. That has happened. And to be frank, we don't know how to carefully and, and responsibly talk about women's roles without sounding like misogynistic morons. What we all agree on, however, is that the dehumanization and the discrimination against women is outrageous and is a despicable sin of which to be ashamed. Nobody disputes that who's not an idiot. And no one, and I repeat, no one should be better at loving and valuing women as equally created in the image of God as the church. I'm just saying the fact that men alone are called to be elders is not despicable and not something of which we should be ashamed if we're doing it right. Why? Because, listen carefully, when we make distinctions between men and women, like who can serve in the church as a pastor or not, listen carefully, the issue is not a difference between men and women in terms of their worth and value before God, but rather the difference is in their respective roles and functions in the Great Commission. In other words, men and women... No one disputes this. Men and women have equal value and dignity before God, being equally created in the image and likeness of God. The difference between men and women, however, concerns their respective roles and functions in the plan of salvation as it unfolds in the world. Let's put it another way. God created men and women. Manhood and womanhood, masculinity and femininity to display equally but differently beautiful things about who God is and to display different but equally significant contribution to the Great Commission that men do. See, there's just something about biblical manhood and masculinity that glorifies God when men lead with love and courage. And there is just something equally glorious about womanhood and femininity when, that equally glorifies God when women serve and support that leadership with, with affection and skill and sacrifice. See, God did not create men and women to compete with one, with one another, but to complement one another. Bottom line, men alone are called to be elders and to lead with love, and women are called to strengthen that leadership according to the various ways that God has gifted them because together a harmonious three-dimensional picture of the Trinity is put on display. That's not either or, it's both and. And so women, I want you to feel loved at this church. I want you to feel valued at this church and maximized as instruments in the Redeemer's hands who make different but equally significant contributions to the great commission that men do. And I want you to love your role as a woman seeing that it is not an instrument designed to constrain you but to liberate you to be who God created you to be. That's the second issue, the gender of elders, which brings us to preliminary issue number three, the standard for elders. 
The standard for elders, which Paul says is to be blameless and above reproach. Look at verses 5 and 6 together. For this reason, Titus, I left you behind in Crete. Why? So that you would appoint elders in every city just as I commanded you. Well, who can be an elder? Notice what he says. If any man is blameless. That's an elder. If any man is blameless. So okay, we saw last week that after Paul commands Titus to appoint elders, he begins to unfold in verses 6 through 9 all the qualifications of what it means to be blameless. And you remember from last week that this term blameless, that it doesn't mean sinless. It doesn't mean sinless, but what it means is that an elder's life, although highly imperfect, is so so authentically transformed by sovereign grace that it puts Jesus Christ on display for the treasure that he is. That is the essence of what it means to be blameless. A transformed life by sovereign grace. It means there's nothing hidden in his life that if exposed, when all the facts are in, would in any way bring himself, bring his God, or bring his church into public disrepute. It means there are no scandals, no skeletons, no secrets, no shame, nothing hidden, nothing to hide. You could peek in his windows, could rummage through his drawers, look under his bed, scour his internet history, record his private secret conversations and record them for everybody to hear. And what you would find is not a sinless man, but what you would find is a man whose life has been radically transformed by sovereign grace. And so the question is, how do you know if you're blameless? How would you know? Because we all struggle with something, multiple things. How do we know if the normal struggles and battles against sin have crossed the line into territory where we are no longer blameless? How can you tell? And what you do is you ask yourself these kinds of questions, and I've used these before. For me, they're a helpful paradigm. Number one, here's questions that determine if you are blameless. Number one, are there some sins that you would never do at church, but you would do somewhere else? Number two, who are you and what do you do when no one is around and no one is watching you except God? Number three, if you knew that you could indulge in the filthiest sin possible and no one would ever know about it and no one would ever see it except God, would you do it? Number four, is the only thing that keeps you back from certain sins the fear of not getting caught and not because of who God is? Because I'll just tell you, there is a world of difference between those two things and how you answer each of those questions determines if you are blameless or if you need to become blameless. And I just want you to know, you can be blameless. You can be that. Not just elders or future elders, but everybody in the room. The surpassing pleasure of a blameless life is possible for you. You see, if you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, it is literally there for the taking. Why? Because what he purchased, you understand, is not just the cancellation of your debt, although that's true, But what he purchased with his death also is the acquisition of all the power you need to do what he commands. Because it's exactly like the hymn that we sing declares. I love this line. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Being blameless is absolutely possible. In and through what Christ has accomplished, there is hope for people like us. Speaking of being blameless... That brings us to the first category in which men are to be blameless, which Paul says is being lethal over lust and being faithful over his family. 
being lethal over lust and faithful over his family. Again, Paul says, Paul gives in verses 16, verses 6 through 9, 15 qualifications which qualify man to serve as an elder. But what we have to understand is that the first qualification on the list is to be blameless, which again is explained by the other 14 qualifications. Number one, blameless is the all-encompassing summary term that, it, that explains what it means and all the terms underneath that define what it means to be blameless. And you see Paul takes those 14 qualifications, groups them into three categories in which elders are to be blameless. And again, category number one, divided up into two parts. And the first part is, is that if a man wants to be blameless, if a man wants to be an elder, he must be lethal over lust. What this means then is that Paul, what he's after here are the most private, secret, vulnerable moments of a man's life. When no one is watching and no one can see him except God. Look what he says in verse 6. For this reason I left you behind in Crete, Titus, why? That you would appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Okay, well who can be an elder if any man is blameless? But what does it look like to be blameless, Paul? And he says the first thing on the list is that a man is blameless if he is the husband of one wife. There it is. The first demonstration, manifestation, that man is truly blameless and thus can serve as an elder in the, in the local church if, it, if he is the husband of one wife. And maybe you're thinking, wait a second, Paul's talking about marriage here. You said that he was talking about sexual uh, purity and lust. And I say, no, Paul is assuming that most elders will be married, but the core fundamental issue about which he is concerned is sexual purity and lust. That just has to be what he's talking about. Because some people do say that Paul is saying here in the text that elders must be married. That if they are single, they are ineligible for eldership. The problem with that is that Paul's language is deliberately vague. I mean, you notice that he doesn't even use the term marriage or married when he easily could have done so. Furthermore, Paul himself was single. And according to 1 Corinthians 7, get this, Paul highly commends singleness as an advantageous, get this, if not more advantageous way to advance the Great Commission. He says it is better. So Paul isn't demanding that elders be married. He is assuming that in most cases, elders will be married, in which case they need to be the husband of one wife. Other people will say, well, no, no, no. See, what Paul is saying is that a man can serve as an elder if and only if he has no divorce and remarriage in his past. That's what it means to be the husband of one wife. And at the first crack of the bat, that seems like they have a good case. The problem with that is that there's nothing in the New Testament at all that forbids someone getting remarried after the death of a spouse. There's nothing that forbids that. In fact, Paul says in Paul, in 1 Timothy 5.14, recommends that very thing. And concerning divorce, of course, divorce is painful and, and ugly and excruciating, and it's an unfortunate reality, and it's never spoken of in the Bible as a preferred course of action. However, let me say this carefully, the New Testament does allow very limited and particular criteria and situations that allow for divorce in such a way where the person who is divorced can still be blameless and above reproach. Divorce doesn't necessarily, in and of itself, disqualify a man from serving as an elder. Now it's case by case, and you should always investigate the situation, but that does not immediately, automatically disqualify a man for eldership. Which leaves us with one final option here. What Paul is after here when he talks about the husband of one wife, get this now, what he's after is a one-woman man. That's what he's after. A one-woman man. In other words, he's talking about a faithful man. He's talking about a holy man. He's talking about a man who not only makes his vow, made his vows, but keeps his vows. 
At the end of the day, what Paul is after is a man who has a life of uncompromising sexual purity and a life transformed, a life transformed by sovereign grace in the area of sexual lust. Because adultery, polygamy, a weekend fleeing, homosexuality, pornography, or any other deviation from the Bible standard of sexuality, including the very thoughts that he thinks in his mind, is exactly what Paul is describing. And that standard is exactly the same whether a man is single or he's married. And so let's be absolutely clear here who Paul is talking about. Paul is not talking about that dude who is always hanging by a thread, towing the line, always quivering on the brink, about to give into temptation. He needs a thousand precautions and firewalls and 15 accountability partners to keep him from jumping into some grimy hole in the internet. No, Paul is talking about a man so utterly captivated by the matchless beauty of Christ and so utterly gripped by the realities contained in God's word that they see the pleasures offered by lust to be what they really are, which are passing pleasures that can never, ever satisfy the soul. That's what Paul's after. Because a blameless man, single or married, is lethal and violent with lust. So the question is, how are you doing, man? Single or married, how are you doing in this area? Are you a one-woman man? Which, which means I'm asking, single or married, are you pursuing a life of uncompromising sexual purity? Single or married, are you pursuing a life transformed by sovereign grace in the area of sexual lust? Because I'll have you know that sexual sin is kind of like those yellow cylindrical bee traps that they sell at the store. Have you seen those? Kind of demented, kind of morbid, these yellow circular cylindrical bee traps that catch hornets and yellow jackets, and it's pretty gross because they get in and starve to death. Hornets, yellow jackets are drawn irresistibly into the trap. And what's interesting to me is that even though the evidence of the trap's destruction is evident right before their eyes, they still plunge themselves in search of a pleasure that they will never, ever find. For whatever reason, the trap is designed in such a way that the amputated corpses and the severed heads and the mangled bodies of their comrades who went before them go unnoticed. And in they go into the trap, having no idea that they go to their own destruction. And that is exactly what sexual sin is like. You're drawn irresistibly, it seems, into a trap in search of a fulfillment that you will never ever find and that always eludes you. And even though, even though to get to lust, a man has to step over the, the mutilated corpses of those who went before him to get to the prize, the man nevertheless plunges himself in pursuit of a pleasure that only has the potential to destroy him. And again, elders, they slaughter sexual sin in their lives. Not so that you don't have to, but so that you will know how to. And so ladies, how are you doing with this issue? Because I'm not about to perpetuate the old adage that this is a guy's only issue, like lust is for guys, modesty is for girls. No, this is an issue of the soul that transcends the bounds of gender. Men and women, young and old, everybody in between, how are you doing with the poisonous serpent of sexual lust? Because Psalm 101.3 says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Matthew 5.27-30, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. 
Ephesians 5.3 says to not even let immorality or impurity even be named among you as is fitting, proper among saints. Colossians 3.5, put to death the members which are on the earth, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Titus, or 1 Peter 2.11, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So the question is, are you pursuing? However, Imperfect and painful that pursuit may be, but are you pursuing a life transformed by sovereign grace in the area of sexual lust? Because I just want you to know, you can have that. You can have that. That that is literally yours for the taking. The greener grass of a holy life And a clean conscience is yours for the taking, not necessarily by trying harder, although that's probably true too, but rather it is possible through and only through the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ, which supplies the power that we need to put sin and temptation to death. Because did you know that? That His death not only secured forgiveness for the sins of the past, but it also supplies all the power we need to put to death sin's temptation did you know that if you belong to Jesus Christ you have been liberated from the tyrant of sin and that you are no longer a slave that Jesus died not just so that you can dodge the bullet of hell but so that you could die to sin and live to righteousness and I know that at some point people can think, and this is a really good question, but people sometimes at this point think, okay, if, it's re- if I'm really free from the clutches of sin's power, like you say, then why is it still so hard not to sin? I mean, if it's really freedom that I possess, then why does it not feel like I think freedom should feel like? Because, I mean, what's the difference between an unbeliever who is a slave to sin and a true believer who still struggles with sin? Because if I'm being totally honest, those things don't oftentimes feel like there's much difference. I mean, how does this work? And the answer is this. Listen carefully. Because I, I believe that this could be possibly the deepest answer the Bible gives for how to overcome temptation and sin. The answer is to be freed from the slavery of sin as a believer means that we have been awakened to the superior beauty of Christ which triumphs over the suicidal pleasures of sin. That's the answer. That as believers we have been awakened to the superior beauty of Christ, which triumphs over the suicidal pleasures of sin. In other words, we can say no to the offer of sin's counterfeit pleasures because now we have tasted what the real thing is. And the real thing is Jesus Christ alone. Don't you see, no one, no one ever sins out of obligation. No one ever sins because they feel like they have to. We sin because sin pretends to offer pleasure. It holds out the promise of pleasure. It pretends to offer happiness. You see, sin is what we do when we are not captivated by Jesus Christ. Therefore, bleary-eyed, battle-wearied warfare against sin is fought in the trenches of a superior delight in Jesus Christ through the word. That is how you win. Listen to the way Augustine put it. Augustine, as you know, was a 4th century pastor in North Africa. And listen to what he said after he got saved. Listen to what he said helped him finally triumph over the, over the suicidal pleasures of sexual sin. Listen very carefully to what he said. He said, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys, talking about lust, those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. He was afraid to lose them. I can't let those go. 
But how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, God. And you took their place. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me. You took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. My Lord, my God, my light, my wealth. And my salvation. Did you hear it? That was the answer. And he's exactly right. You drove them from me, God. And you took their place. Why? Because you are sweeter than all pleasure. You see, that is the answer. That is what freedom tastes like. It is finding Jesus Christ so compelling, so exceptional, so beautiful that all other competing pleasures are exposed to be exactly for what they are. This is how we win. Therefore, if you want to see victory over sexual sin and put it to death with power and violence, you must find a superior delight in Jesus Christ through the instrumentality of the scriptures. And that's part one of category one. That if an elder wants to be blameless, he must be lethal over lust. But there's a second component to this category, namely that an elder must absolutely be faithful over his family. Not only lethal with lust, but faithful over his family. Look again very carefully at what Paul says in verse six. He says, appoint elders, Titus, Okay, that's great. Well, who can be an elder if a man is blameless? Okay, well, what does it look like to be blameless, Titus, if if a man is uh, above reproach? Well, what does it look like to be above reproach? If a man is a husband of one wife, uncompromising in sexual purity. But here, notice, secondly, Paul says he must have faithful children, not accused of debauchery or rebellion or insubordination. And that's the qualification. To be an elder, a man must have faithful. Or maybe your version says, believing children. Children who are believers. And regardless of how you translate that verse, isn't it interesting to you that this qualification made the list? That the conduct of a potential elder's children made the list? That's really interesting because the question is, how? Why did that make the list? Well, what does the conduct of a potential elder's kids have anything to do with him serving as an elder in the local church? And you know why. You know exactly why. It makes perfect sense that this would be on the list, doesn't it? It is because the man's home is probably the truest test of who and what a man really is. Because who and what a man really is, is who and what he is when he pulls into the driveway and pulls into the garage and opens the door and hangs up his keys. That is who and what a man really is. And depending on who he is in those moments, that is what determines if he can serve as an elder in the local church for the Great Commission. And so you you think about it here, imperfect and flawed, though a man may be, if a man is faithful to love his wife and to lead his family and to shepherd his children and to feed his little flock in the home in an exemplary way that is observable and invisible to everyone who knows him, that man and that man alone is a potential candidate to be an elder. And when you think about it, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul poses, talking about elders, Paul poses this rhetorical question. And in verse 5, he says, If a man is not, does not know how to care for his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? That's his question. And the answer is, if a man does not know how to care for his household, then he cannot and he must not be a leader in over the household of the living God. The question is, what does this even mean, though? What is Paul talking about? Because what you may or may not know is that there's this massive debate over the meaning of the text. There's this word there in the text, in the Greek text. Pistos is the Greek word. And that term can either be translated as believing, or it can be translated as faithful, with the idea of being obedient. So believing or faithful. 
And depending on how you understand the term, Paul is either talking about children who are born-again believers who demonstrate the authenticity of their faith with a transformed life, or he's talking about children who may not be saved necessarily, but who are nevertheless well-disciplined and faithful to submit to the loving leadership of mom and dad. That's the debate. Doesn't sound like much of a heated debate, but there, there's a lot of discussion out there. So that's what we're, that's the debate. So we have regenerated true believers or not necessarily believers, but faithful to obey mom and dad. Which does Paul mean? That's the question. And I believe the answer is option B. That Paul means faithful, not believing. Faithful, faithful not in terms of, of children who are saved, but children who are well-taught, well-disciplined, and obedient to the faithful leadership of mom and dad. And, and I think that's the issue that, that Paul is saying. And again, don't, don't get me wrong, having saved kids who prize Christ as their highest treasure is a parent's dream. And it is the ideal for which parents plead with God to happen. But I'm just saying children who believe is not Paul's requirement to be an elder. And I believe there's proof for this. I believe there's evidence for this in the text. Three evidences, in fact, that I believe proves that Paul means faithful, not believing. Evidence number one. Evidence number one. Notice the very next sentence, what Paul says. He actually explains what he means by that word, pistos. Notice what he says. To serve as an elder, a man must have believing children, Faithful children? Meaning what? What does that look like? Notice, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Or insubordination is another way to say it. So, so do you see what Paul does there? He defines the kind of children he, dis, uh, he means by explaining what those children are like. And the kind of children that disqualify a man from serving as an elder if those kids can be accused of debauchery or rebellion. The term debauchery, that means wild, out of control living. Just going off the deep end of, of one's sin without restraint. I mean, think the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. The son squanders his inheritance with a loose living. In fact, that's the exact same word that Paul uses here. And the idea, it's not just sex and drugs and rock and roll, but any lazy or wild lifestyle that goes off the deep end with one's sin. That's what that means. But secondly, a man is disqualified from serving as an elder if his children can be accused of rebellion or insubordination. Meaning, defiance, disrespect, insubordination that openly disregards the authority of the parents or any other authority for that matter. You see, when children are allowed to speak to parents in rude, hostile, angry, disrespectful ways and display, get this now, ongoing patterns of defiance and insubordination, that's exactly what Paul is talking about. So my point is this, don't, don't miss the point here. If Paul is defining a Christian as someone who merely can't be accused of debauchery or rebellion, that's a really low bar for what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? But if Paul is describing a kid with all their struggles and challenges notwithstanding, if he is describing their faithful obedience and imperfect though it may be, compliance to the loving leadership of mom and dad, then it makes perfect sense that Paul would mean faithful. Evidence number two. Evidence number two. Every single time Paul uses that word pistos in the letter to Titus, he always means faithful, not believing. Chapter one, verse nine. Elders are to hold fast to the faithful word. Exact same term. Chapter 3, verse 8, Paul talks about a trustworthy or a, a faithful saying. Exact same term. In fact, this term is used hundreds of thousands of times in ancient Greek documents and stories and manuscripts and writings and all throughout the New Testament and with very few exceptions. It almost always means faithful. And I would know because I looked up hundreds of those references. If you want the document, I've got like a 25-page document that walks through this kind of stuff, and you can see the full argument. 
But finally, evidence number three. Evidence number three, that I believe Paul means faithful, not believing, because in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gave a parallel list of elder qualifications. They give a parallel list, just like the one in Titus. And there he said, notice this, there he said in 1 Timothy 3, that children must be respectful and obedient and submissive to authority. It's exactly Paul's point in Titus chapter 1. So the point is, two separate lists, exact same qualifications, and any ambiguity that we might have in Titus is perfectly cleared up by the list in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So what's the point? Why does this matter? Why does this qualification, why is it even on the list? And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? See, the issue here, why this is on the list, is way less about the children and way more about the father of those children, isn't it? It's way less about having the the perfect family that the hair is combed straight and they wear matching clothes and they all look like they're all in line and everything looks good. The, the, The question is less about that, but way less about the intentionality of a father to lead and love his children and shepherd them with the gospel. The issue is way less about conforming to some ideal of what the model family looks like and way more about the intentionality of a father to lead his home. That is the issue. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? A man's leadership in his home is the greatest proving ground for ministry because a man's home is his greatest ministry. I mean, how can you tell if a man is going to shepherd you and lead you, and care for you, and disciple you, however imperfectly that may be, if he is already doing those kinds of things in the home, or has done them, or did do them in the home when his kids were there. So the question is, man, how are you doing with this issue? Those of you who have children, who have families, how are you doing caring for the souls of your children in a spiritual way? The question is, does the state of the souls of your children mean more to you than the state of their grades or their sports or even merely their behavior? Does that hold a supreme place of importance in your life? Is that reflected in your priorities? Is your home a pulpit? Is your life a pulpit as it were? that however imperfectly it may be, proclaims the glory and the supremacy of Jesus Christ and do the priorities that you choose for your home reflect that message? Or does work or hobbies or something else have the upper hand that overshadows the priority to care for the souls of your children? And I, just, I know those are loaded questions. I'm, I'm in that boat. I have little kids. And I just want you to know that, that this kind of stuff here that we're talking about, leading your home, shepherding your family, I just want you to know that this comes natural to pretty much nobody. This is intuitive and, and instinctive to very few men to know, just automatically know how to shepherd their family and lead their homes and, and disciple their children. This comes almost naturally to nobody, certainly not me. And so families, young families, singles, or anyone else, I just want you to know that what we want to do is we want to help you. April 9th and 10th. That's a Friday and a Saturday. I I literally want you to take out a pencil or inscribe it on your arm with something sharp, whatever you got to do. Tattoo, we'll do tattoos here this morning. Just line up with this date on your your arm, April 9th and 10th. We're actually going to do a, a parenting conference, a family conference right here. This church, we're going to fly someone in who is a family pastor, and we're going to talk about a a biblical vision for the family and the priorities of of a Great Commission family, and and we need a place to start. We need a place to begin. We need to, to look at the Word and what it says on how to shape priorities as a family and set a trajectory for our family and for our parenting. And so, because this comes naturally to no one, we need to learn how to do this. And so, we are going to provide that for you. Because you see the chain reaction, don't you? Godly men and women... Make great marriages. 
that build strong families, that strengthen local churches, that advance the Great Commission, that put Jesus Christ on display. Because I'm going to say something shocking here. If you do not have healthy spiritual men in the church, you do not have a church. If you don't have healthy men in the church, you don't have a church. You have to understand authentic church health is not measured by programs. Razzle-me-dazzle programs that give the mere appearance of momentum and excitement, but rather when the men of a local church, women too, but especially the men, when their passion is to be richly indwelt by the word of Christ, and to make the spiritual health of others their top priority, especially the souls of their own families. That is the kind of church that changes the world, and by God's grace, that is the kind of church that we want to become. Let's pray to that end. Oh Lord, I love Paul's letter to Titus. But Lord, at the same time, It is a little cutting, it is a little sharp, it is a little heavy, it is weighty. Lord, I am grateful for this uncompromising vision of what it looks like to have a church and what it it means to have men leading the church. And, And Lord, I pray, I pray that you would help us rather than feel daunted and overwhelmed as if this were totally impossible, which it is from a human perspective, Lord, but I pray that you would inspire us all, not just the men, but us all, O Lord, to pursue these qualifications, to pursue these things for our own life. We really need you, Lord. Lord, we struggle and we have challenges and anxieties and fears and all sorts of things in our lives. And coming to Sunday morning sometimes is just a real challenge. Just being here is a miracle in and of itself, Lord. And so we, we need you. We need you to help us learn how to abide in you. We need you to help us be a people who learn how to depend on your grace and your word moment by moment. Help us, Lord. We are, our default mode is struggle. So help us, Lord, to come together as a church, to partner together in this life together as believers, and that you would use us in each other's lives to strengthen one another, that we would live lives that put your glory on display. Thank you so much for this time. In Christ's name, amen.